Before we begin, I would like to tell everyone an amazing story that happened to our family this past Friday. As you know, I am sure, every year our family makes an annual pilgrimage, an annual odyssey to the Northeast. We live, of course, in Houston. It gets somewhat hot. It gets somewhat oppressive. And we like to visit our family in the Northeast. So my parents live in New York. My in-laws live in Toronto in Canada. And every year, for the past eight years since we moved to Houston, we used to live, of course, in Israel. But the past eight years, we've been going to the Northeast, spending time with my parents and spending time by my in-laws. The kids get to spend time with the grandparents. We've been doing now eight years running. Now, please God, this year, and actually this week, we're planning on making that same trip that we do each summer. Now, of course, this year, it's different because we have the coronavirus. And Canada and the United States have sealed their border to everyone but citizens. And there may be a carve-out for relatives of citizens. It's a little bit unclear the exact language of the rule of the order. So it's not so clear if we'll actually be able to get in. So in the unlikely event that the United States does not annex Canada before we go visit it, we're going to have to see if we could navigate past the border guards. It's a little bit unclear. But anyhow, that is the plan. So what do you do when you want to travel, I think, with a large family cross-country? So you got to do a lot of preparations. Now, one of the things that we did this year is we bought like a bag, like a suitcase that goes on top of the car, on top of the van, which is going to free up a lot of room so we can have more navigation room inside the car. Every seat in our minivan is, thank God, filled with with a child. Of course, one of the big problems that we face is going through the country and trying to find kosher food. There's a lot of kosher food in places where there are large Jewish communities, but driving through the country, it's almost entirely bereft of kosher food. So we have to pack ahead and we have to kind of coordinate our trip in a way that makes it possible for us to find kosher food along the way. But anyhow, we had a crisis this past week. The key to the van disappeared. Now, thank God we have two keys, but... You never want to be stuck with only one key because you really need the backup because if you lose the one key, then you're really in a bind. So we have two keys and one of them, of course, has, you know, all the fancy clickers, open the doors and all that. That's the key to use and that disappears. And all we have is the old key that just turns it on kind of manually to lock the door. You got to turn the key and it's a little bit less convenient. At least we have a key. But now the search begins. The whole house combing the whole house, trying to find the key. And of course, with a bunch of little children in the house with minds of their own and devious plans, you never know who picked up the keys. You know, if you go shopping and you're picking up a bunch of bags and groceries and all that and you have the keys, you drop the keys and they disappear and one of the kids takes it and hides it or whatever and you'll never know. It's, you know, you got to check every shoe. Anyhow, this past week, we've been looking for the keys all over the house. And I take a flashlight and I'm going through every cabinet and every closet and under every bed. And I thought it maybe dropped into the shoes. So I'm checking the shoes. We cannot find these keys. So I just resign to living a life with only one key. So I go to Home Depot and I take the key. I say, okay, could you make a copy of this key? And they say, I'm sorry, sir. If you want to copy this key, it's a special kind of key. They only do it in the dealership. I Google it. It's a couple hundred dollars. Listen, if that's what you got to pay, we'll have to, we'll have to deal with it. They can't do it in Home Depot, but I'm not going to the dealership. So I say, okay, I'm going home and I'm making one last ditch effort to find it. I actually incentivized my kids. I said, whoever finds it, I'm giving you $5. You find it, you get $5. Now to the older kids, Five dollars is not enough. So I said, okay, okay, listen, guys, don't tell the younger kids. But if one of you two oldest kids finds it, ten dollars, not five dollars, ten dollars. Anyhow, the kids, of course, they put in like their lackluster five seconds. Oh, I can't find it. Sorry. Anyhow, Friday, I'm combing the whole house, 
looking for it everywhere it could conceivably be. And to no avail, we don't find it. So we're getting ready for Shabbos. It's like 5 o'clock in the afternoon, 5, 6 in the afternoon. We're getting ready for Shabbos. And suddenly I hear a shriek, a delighted shriek from the kitchen. I found it. And my wife tells me the most amazing thing. She says that as she's walking to the kitchen, she realizes that like we've looked through the entire house and we've done every conceivable effort on our part to try to find it. So she said in her head as she's walking to the kitchen, this is only in God's hands. That's the first thing that she, she said. That's it. We've done everything we could possibly do. It's in God's hands. That's the first thing she said. As she's walking down the hallway to the kitchen. And the next thing she says is, you know what? We're going to pledge, if we find the key, to give a gift to charity. And she's walking to the kitchen and she opens a drawer this literally happened within five seconds of, of this kind of internal conversation. Boom. The keys are right there. We assume one of the little kids maybe dropped it into like a drawer that usually, you know, has some pots or has some containers or something like that. And she said it was unbelievable. You're not looking for it anymore. You kind of give up on it. And you have this mental exercise. You're praying basically and you're saying, I know it's not in my hands. And you make a pledge to give some charity if you find it. And boom, with no effort, it's right there in front of you. And I quickly gathered all my kids around and I told them this, told them the story. And right away, I went online and made a donation to charity. And I said, you know what? This is such a cool story because we talk a lot about faith and we talk a lot about Torah. And no matter how much faith we actually absorb, there's always that kind of that last mile where it's really, really real. Even Noah, Noah, of course, is a tzaddik. He's called a tzaddik by the Torah. He's righteous by the Torah standards. He's definitely righteous. The Talmud says, well, his faith wasn't exactly complete. Why? Because he only went into the ark because of the waters of the flood in chapter 7 of Genesis. There was a little bit of the fact that the weather mattered to him as well. Even he, of course, uh, an exemplar, a paragon of faith, there was still something a little bit lacking. And of course, the greatest man that ever lived, Moses, we're going to read in Parshas Chukas, how even Moses is going to be labeled with someone who has incomplete amuna. And the sages tell us that really only God can have full amuna because only God knows God completely. And therefore, to the degree that someone does not know God, then there is a lack of amuna, a lack of faith. But this was such a nice experience to kind of have this little window into like the real world that the Almighty, of course, is controlling everything. And as I'm looking, f- you know, futilely for the key, the man knows exactly where it is. And he knows that he could put a little thought in your mind, gee, why don't you open up, you know, gee, why don't you open up this drawer and you'll find it in a second. But of course, he, you know, he doesn't give you that thought. And you spend an hour, two hours looking through the house, combing the house, you don't find it. And then you make a slight prayer. They make a slight commitment of charity, and instantly you just have it handed to you on a silver platter. So I said, you know what? I'm going to share this with everyone because it's such a nice example of the Almighty actually playing a part, kind of winking at us and saying, hey, I'm still here. I'm still with you. I'm still holding your hand, and I'm still there whenever you reach out to me. Okay, so we are up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 17. And the author of this Mishnah is one of the most important figures in Jewish history. And largely, you could say that about any author of the Mishnah. But this one really stands out. And I think his lesson is very valuable to us throughout history, but certainly today. So we're going to read the Mishnah quickly. And it's a short Mishnah, but I think it, you know, it's a powerful teaching. And of course, one of the most important figures in Jewish history. So we'll talk about him as well. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says, whenever it says Rabbi Shimon without any parents, we don't know who Rabbi Shimon ben somebody, it is Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai or Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai. And he traditionally is viewed as the author of the Zohar and essentially the father of Kabbalah, the father of Jewish mysticism. And of course, in Judaism, the idea of mysticism being separated 
from Torah in general is totally anathema. So, of course, someone like Rabbi Shimon, we view him historically as being the father of mysticism, but he is mentioned hundreds of times in the Talmud and the Mishnah, and without any, you know, mystical context, because he was a giant of all kinds of Torah, the revealed and the hidden. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon says, Shlosha Ksaramheim. There are three crowns. Keser Torah, the crown of Torah. Ve'keser Kahuna, and the crown of priesthood, of a Kohen. Ve'keser Malchus, and the crown of kingship, of the monarchy. Ve'keser Shem Tov, Ola Al Gabeim. But the crown of a good name, that goes on top of them. That surpasses all of them. So there's three crowns, even though if you read the Mishnah, it seems like there's four crowns. There's three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of the monarchy. And then there's this crown of a good name, of having a good reputation, of behaving in a way that makes others look up to you. And that, so to speak, validates the other three crowns. So we're going to get into this Mishnah. But first, let's talk about Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, often called Rashbi. It's important to note that we did have a Mishnah earlier on in chapter 3, which I had two Mishnahs that were attributed to Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yichai. We didn't really talk about him sufficiently, so we're going to do it right now. Now, like the preceding Mishnahs, Rabbi Shimon is yet again another student of Rabbi Akiva. Again, Rabbi Akiva, 24,000 students, and that entire academy perished, and he travels south, and he finds five students and he rebuilds Torah via these five students. One of those students, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon Barichai, the author of our Mishnah. And as we've mentioned countless times before, this was a time of unprecedented persecution. Hadrian and the rest of the Romans did not tolerate the Jewish people in Judea, did not tolerate Torah, made all kinds of edicts that restricted Jewish life. And in fact, these five students were only able to receive smicha, to receive rabbinic ordination, via this one old rabbi, Rabbi Yudu ben Bava, who himself was assassinated by the Romans throwing spears through him for the grave sin of providing rabbinic ordination to these five students. Now, these five students are all household names. As we mentioned in the past, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Meir, etc., but you can make the argument that of all these students, the most impactful of them is Rabbi Shimon. Now, when we talk about him, it's very problematic because there is so much to discuss. And there are so many stories, hundreds, maybe thousands of stories about him. He is such an absolute legend that we're going to have to curate which stories. And we're going to share some of the classic stories and some of my personal favorites. The Zohar must have hundreds and hundreds of stories about him. And each one of them, of course, are valuable. Each one of them are preserved, documented, and perpetuated for a reason. But we're going to try to give a flavor of the character by going through some of the classic stories in the Talmud and in other associated literature to get a flavor of who he was and what he stood for. So again, he is emerging at a time where Judaism where Torah is under assault. You have rabbis being assassinated. You have Torah being systemically banned. Again, Rabbi Akiva, the rabbi, the teacher of Rabbi Shimon, he was murdered. He was assassinated by the Romans for the sin of teaching Torah publicly. Think about it. What's it like to try to maintain Torah, maintain the tradition, maintain an academy, convey Torah to the next generation, one of the greatest sages in the land for the crime of teaching Torah to his Jewish brethren has his skin flayed off of him by these barbarous Romans. So the students are dying, the rabbis are being assassinated, the Romans are interfering, obstructing the Jews at every corner. It was truly an existential time for the Jewish people. And we see this figure, Rabbi Shimon, He's emerging at this time, and he's presenting an outlook 
that is going to inspire the nation really at that point and from then forward. He taught that we must not capitulate to the Romans. He believed the Jewish people, believed in our destiny, and he taught us that the only way forward is to adopt an uncompromising, almost fanatic zeal for Torah and to not yield an inch. We have to have complete immersion in Torah, 100%, and that that total attitude of Torah, that's going to help us rebuild the Jewish nation. The best example of this is the Talmud in the book of Brachus, page 35b. We mentioned this a few times in the past. The Talmud wants to answer the question, wants to resolve the dilemma. How should someone allocate their time and how should they allocate their resources? What should they focus on? We are given a finite amount of time in this world. We have to choose how are we going to invest our time. Of course, we have manifold responsibilities. We've got to feed our family. We've got to take care of our children. We've got to take care of our, of our spouses. We have to have a standing in the community. And we have to study Torah. And how exactly we're going to allocate our time and our resources, it's a very important question. So the Talmud reads a debate. It quotes a verse. The verse in Scripture tells us, Ve'asafta diganecha. This is in the Shema. It's in the second paragraph of the Shema. The Almighty promises us, if we obey Torah, if we listen to God, we will gather our grain. Says the Talmud, if the verse tells you, you will gather your grain, what does it say about your occupation, about your profession? Obviously, you are a farmer. And the Torah is telling you, you're a farmer, but you're not a not a bad farmer. You're a good farmer. You obey God. You listen to the Torah. You obey the strictures of halacha. The Almighty says, okay, I'm going to make it good. You'll have lots of rain. You'll have peace. You'll have stability. And you're about to gather in your grain. So the first opinion Talmud says is that we have to try to harmonize our Torah life and our agricultural, agrarian life of a farmer we have to try to find a way to do both. Study Torah, of course, that's a priority. That's maybe the priority. But we also have to feed our families, and therefore we have to have a field, and therefore we have to be farmers, and therefore we have to kind of spend our time making sure that we make a living, but also not to neglect Torah study. That's the first opinion. Comes along Rabbi Shimon and says, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be allocated. When it says that you gather your grain... That's not the ideal. Ideally, you should be 100% immersed in Torah study. What's it going to be? Someone's going to plow in a time of plowing. And someone's going to plant during the season of planting. And someone is going to harvest when it's time to harvest. And someone is going to thresh their grain in a time of threshing. And someone's going to winnow when it's windy. The entire year is going to be filled with agrarian responsibilities of the farmer. Torah, matehe What is going to be with Torah? You want to kind of harmonize and let's have everything. How could you possibly have everything? If your whole life you're going to be busy with your farm. Every season has its work that's associated with that time of the season. When are you going to study Torah? So what's the solution? Just study Torah. That's it. Who's going to feed your family? Who's going to take care of your children? Who's going to feed your wife? We've got for that. The Almighty will provide you. The Almighty's a billionaire. What are you worried about having food? The Almighty will give it to you. The Almighty parachuted manna to the Jewish nation for 40 years. You don't think there's enough food for you and your family? If you do your job, says Rabbi Shimon, you study Torah, you commit yourself to God, God will reciprocate. He'll take care of you. That was his attitude. Now, the Talmud says that both attitudes are legitimate, both to try to harmonize and 100% Torah of Rabbi Shimon, both are legitimate. However, data has shown that the people that tried to harmonize, to have everything, most of those people succeeded. 
And most of the people that took the approach of Rabbi Shimon and said 100% Torah and God will give me manna, most of those people's failed. The Talmud doesn't make a definitive ruling, but the Talmud says that the surveys show, the studies show, one is more likely to succeed than the other. So that's the debate in the Talmud. But I think if we, we see this, we see a conflict. We see a disagreement. On one hand, we have what we would call the, the prudent approach. It's prudent for us to take matters into our own hands and to feed our family and to try to find harmony between our various responsibilities. And Rabbi Shimon is almost like the lone opinion that kind of dismisses the prudent approach and says, what's going to be with Torah? And the Talmud does not rule his opinion out. The Talmud says is Rabbi Shimon, he's kind of working at a higher level. He's operating on a higher dimension. In his worldview, in his perspective, the Jewish people can still live a life and be on a stature to receive manna. And you know what? If someone could do it, Rabbi Shimon himself, he could pull it off. But for most people, they try and maybe they're overshooting, you know, what, 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 the, what, what they possibly could reasonably achieve. Rabbi Shimon is someone who's always viewing us in our best light. He is telling us, it's not just the Jewish people of thousands of years ago that could have had that close relationship with God. Even us, even today, even when really the Romans have devastated the ranks of the scholars, the Jewish people are downtrodden. It's not too late for us to ascend to that high level, to be in close proximity to God and to have God be involved with us in every day of our lives. And this attitude, I think, permeated a lot of his interactions with the Romans and with the Jews around him. So, of course, the famous story we spoke about last Mishnah, the rabbis are discussing the Romans, and comes along Rabbi Judah, Rabbi Yehuda, and he says, well, they did a lot of good things. They built up the infrastructure, they built the, the bridges, and they built the marketplaces and the bathhouses. They did a lot of important infrastructure work in Judea. Says Rabbi Shimon, they did it. But why did they do it? They did it for their own selfish reasons. They may, they wanted the tolls. They wanted to levy the taxes and therefore they put the bridges and they wanted to have pleasure. So they made the marketplaces and they made the bathhouses. He was someone who viewed the opposition, so to speak, the way, exactly the way they are without sugarcoating it, without being political or pragmatic about it. He was someone who said, I have God on my side 100%. And just like the Jews in the wilderness are not worried about any of the enemies, the Umayyad is going to carve them up like bread. What are we worried about? We don't even, if Rabbi Shimon was around, no one would say, let's go send in scouts, let's go send in spies to go inspect the land. What do we need to worry about? If God's parachuting man at us, if God's on our side, God's taking care of us, we don't need to inspect the defenses of the enemy. We got this. The Almighty is on our side. But of course, as a result of that, the Romans say, we're going to execute him. And he ends up escaping to a cave. And he spends 13 years in the cave, just him and his son, studying Torah. According to the Talmud, they had buried themselves up to their neck in sand or in, in the dirt and we're studying Torah. And according to the tradition, Elijah came and taught Rabbi Shimon all the secrets of Torah. And on a like a Kabbalistic level, we say that a person is a union, a fusion of opposites. We have our body that's kind of pulling us down. We have our soul that's kind of pulling us up. And we are caught between this tension of the, our physical halves and our spiritual halves. And we have to choose which one of those sides are we going to favor. Are we going to veer to our more spiritual self? Are we going to embrace our soul? Or are we going to allow our body to define us and that become our identity and that be the kind of life and priorities that we choose? And perhaps we could say, 
when the Talmud tells us that Rabbi Shimon and his son buried themselves up to their neck in the ground, what that's telling us on a Kabbalistic level is that their body was like it was buried. It was as if it was dead. It was not playing a factor at all in their decision, in their perspective, in their worldview. It might have been buried. It was only their mind. It was only their intellect. It was only their spiritual sides that was operating. That was his outlook. Most people make decisions based upon their body. The Romans are going to hurt me. I better make sure that I walk a fine line. How am I going to feed my family? These are all concerns of the body. Now, of course, the Torah tells us you have to take care of your body. But Rabbi Shimon is operating like his body's buried. He's thinking just as a soul. And as a soul, it's clear the mind is going to take care of you. You don't need to worry. He spends 13 years in the cave. And after things settle down, the edict against his life goes away. He re-emerges. So again, we see he is someone who's living on this higher level. He's operating as, as a soul. He is not willing to kowtow to the Romans at all. And he has a certain tenacity, a certain sheer determination that the nation is going to be able to re, be rebuilt, not in some mediocre, okay fashion, but as a resplendent nation, kingdom of priests, holy nation, we could still aspire to be great once again. So another example of this, one of the famous lines that Rabbi Shimon has in the Talmud, it's in the book of Shabbos, page 138a. And the discussion is a little bit of a morbid one. The discussion in the Talmud is, will Torah be forgotten from the Jewish people? It's a very serious question. And one opinion postulates that there is a verse that seems to imply that the Torah in the future will be forgotten. Things are not going to always be rosy. There's many times the Torah has been forgotten. And then the rabbis of Yavne, they say, also bring a second verse, and they say, well, Torah is going to be forgotten. Comes along Rabbi Shimon. What does he say? Chas v'shalom. Heaven forfend. Heaven forbid. Shetishtakach Torah Yisrael. The Torah will be forgotten from the Jewish people. And he quotes another verse. Ki lo sishakach bizarro. Torah will not be forgotten from the Jewish nation. So what about the verses that seem to imply that Torah will be forgotten? Well, it means that we'll lose a little bit of our edge. But Torah and the Jewish people are forever united. We're not going to forget Torah. We see an interesting debate. The rabbis, they look at scripture and they look at Jewish history and they see that all the ingredients are in place for the Jewish people to forget Torah. They weren't exaggerating. This wasn't an empty threat. It was serious. And they were right. They were being very prudent. But they were operating on one level. Comes along Rosh Hashanah and says, no, God forbid, it's not going to happen. And he's almost like willing it to endure. Yes, things look grim. But Rosh Hashanah looks at us as the nation of the Almighty going to work out. We have God on our side. We are that great nation at all times. And sometimes there's lots of things covering up our greatness. Our connection to God, our intense holiness is maybe obscured, but we just do a little clearing away and the Jewish people and the Jewish soul will once again shine forth. And his attitude was such that even sinners even people who could objectively be defined as people who are wicked, people who are not obeying Torah, people who are distant from God, he was always able to find the inherent latent holiness that defines each Jew. So, for example, the Talmud talks about the Ben Sorer Umore, the wayward and rebellious son. It's a verse in well, it's, a, it's a section, it's a story, it's a law in Deuteronomy, that if you have a son, and he has to be between 13 and 13 and 3 months, so a very narrow window where this law can apply, and he behaves in a recalcitrant fashion, doesn't listen to his parents, doesn't listen to his mother, doesn't listen to his father, starts to exhibit signs of criminality, is stealing money, and exhibiting signs of gluttony, is buying meat, 
and buying wine and developing bad friends and doing all these terrible things. So the verse says that such a, such a child, when all these precise ingredients are in play at this particular moment in their development, this child, says the Torah, is destined to become a murderer. The Torah could predict, we can't do this, but the Torah could predict, the Almighty is going to predict that if you have this precise characteristics, this precise criteria of a child at this particular age, it's got to be a male. Women doesn't work like that. This particular age, doing this and this particular things, they're going to be a murderer. And therefore, says the Torah, it's better to kill them now when they're still innocent. They haven't committed any grievous capital offenses. Better to do that now than to wait until they actually mature into a full-fledged criminal and then going to be executed, but executed in sin. That's the law of a Ben Soramora. Comes along Rabbi Shimon. And what does he say? Ben Soramora, the wayward and rebellious son, lo haya, velo asidlios. Never happened and never will happen. Rabbi Shimon, he sees a sinner. He sees a kid who's quickly spiraling out of control. And he is still bullish. The Talmud says he's bound to continue his sinful ways. No. Rabbi Shimon says, it's inconceivable to be told that there is a Jew who is irredeemable. In his view, every Jew has holiness that's just waiting to burst forth. And once it surfaces, the child will change his life. There's another Mishnah in the book of Shabbos. And the Mishnah is talking about various things that are prohibited on Shabbos. It's talking about, you know, if someone has a toothache on Shabbos, generally we don't do any medical procedures on Shabbos, but would someone be allowed to do certain procedures on, on Shabbos to, to alleviate a toothache or various other things that are, so to speak, on the edge, questionable things. And then it talks about putting on a certain kind of perfume, a certain kind that's called Shemen Vered, which means uh, rose oil. Is someone allowed to put that on on Shabbos? So the Talmud says, so the Mishnah says that the first opinion of the Mishnah is, well, if someone is a prince, if someone is part of the nobility, if someone is part of the aristocracy, and they're used to doing that, they're used to making sure that they smell perfect, even during the weekday, well, then on Shabbos, let her do it. That's the normal thing, let her do it. Comes like Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon Omer. Rabbi Shimon says, Call Yisrael b'nei melachim heim. All of Israel. We're all princes. Don't tell me, oh, there is a prince, and therefore they're allowed to behave that way. Oh, no. Every single Jew is a prince. And therefore, you can't make exceptions for this prince and not include that prince. Any Jew, no matter how downtrodden, no matter how many people are predicting that our glory days are behind us, Rabbi Shimon saw the prince in each one of them. Another favorite story of mine, found in the Talmud book of Me'ila, page 17a, and this gives a flavor of the character of Rabbi Shimon, but also of the times in which he lived. The Talmud says there was once a decree from the wicked kingdom. Of course, that's the Romans. And it was a three-pronged decree. Number one, Jews may not observe the Shabbos. Number two, Jews may not circumcise their sons. Number three, Jews may not obey the laws of family purity. Briefly, the laws of family purity are that when a woman is menstruating, she may not be with her husband until she goes to the mikvah until the process of family purity is taken. So these were the three decrees. So I was trying to figure out, what do we do? The Romans, of course, are not known for their tolerant ways, and these are bedrocks of Jewish life. What do we do that they are now prohibited? So there was one rabbi named Rabbi Ruvain ben Istrabuli, and he says, you know what? I'm going to infiltrate the ranks of the Romans, and I'm going to convince them it's a bad idea. So he got his, he got his haircut. It was a Gentile haircut. It was a haircut that all the Romans had, but none of the Jews had. 
So he disguised himself as a Roman, and he joined the Romans. And he says, I'm going to be this fifth column. I'm going to be the Trojan horse, and I'm going to convince them out of this. So he's sitting with all the Romans, maybe sitting with the senators or the consuls, the proconsuls. or He's sitting with the big honchos of the Romans, and he asks them the following question. Suppose you have an enemy. Do you want your enemy to be rich or to be poor? Well, they said, of course, we want our enemy to be poor, of course. So he says, well, the Jews, they're your enemies. If they work on Shabbos, then they're going to have another day of economic activity, and then they'll be richer. So doesn't it make sense to allow them to refrain from work on Shabbos? Let's allow them to work to refrain from work. They'll be poorer and we'll weaken our enemy. They say that's a great idea. Okay. Continues this individual. If you have an enemy, do you want him to be strong physically or weak? Obviously, we want him weak. Okay. Let them circumcise their babies. The kids will be physically weakened and we'll have a more vulnerable enemy. Genius. Brilliant. Okay. They allowed the Jews to circumcise. And finally, do you want your enemy to proliferate, to have lots of babies, or you want them to have very few babies. Of course, we want to have a smaller population of our enemies. Brilliant. The Jews want to take two weeks off from procreating? Let them do it. They'll have fewer babies. So this rabbi, Rabbi Reuven, managed to convince the Romans to drop all their edicts and allow the Jews to behave as they wished. But sometime later, they picked up on the ruse. They discovered that this person was an imposter. So right away, they reinstituted, they reestablished those decrees. And now the rabbis are faced the quandary. What do we do? The Romans are not allowing the Jews to obey, to observe Shabbos, to observe circumcision, and to observe the laws of family purity. We need to send a representative to go lobby our case in Rome. Who wants to walk into the lion's den? And of course, there were no volunteers besides for Rabbi Shimon. And as I just said, Rabbi Shimon, well, he's well-versed. He's experienced in ways of miracles. He's going to go represent us. So Rabbi Shimon begins his trek from Israel. He's going to Rome and he's going to lobby the Jewish people's case. Along the way, he has a visitor who comes to visit him. The Talmud tells us that his visitor is a demon. What a demon is is a big question. It's like a hybrid between a human and an, and an angel. It's a hybrid between a human and an angel. It has three characteristics of a human, three characteristics of an angel. Very, very interesting, very mysterious creature. He appears to Rabbi Shimon and he says, I know you're going to Rome. I know you're going to lobby your case for the Romans. I want to help you. So if this happened to us, we would be like blown away. Oh my goodness, there's this spiritual demon creature that's coming to help me. That's amazing. What does Rabbi Shimon do? He starts crying. He says, look how far we have fallen. In Genesis, when Abraham's maidservant needs some help, a real bona fide angel comes to help her. And all I have is this lousy, pathetic demon. So he takes the demon and he says, okay, I'll tell you what you do. Go to Rome, go help me. The demon travels to Rome, embeds itself in the daughter of the Caesar and causes her to scream on top of her lungs, I need Rabbi Shimon, I need Rabbi Shimon. And as Rabbi Shimon actually marches into Rome, the whole town is looking for him. So he's quickly ushered into the chambers of Rome and he tells the demon, okay, your time is up, you've done your job, now come out. And like that, the daughter is healed and people couldn't believe what they saw. What a miracle worker. They bring him to the coffers of Rome, whatever you want you can take. All the gold, all the silver, everything, anything you want, fill up your pockets and go. He says, all I want is this decree being annulled. They say, that's all you want. It's yours. He rips it up. It's annulled and he, go back, he, and he goes back along his way. 
again, this is an, one example, but there's many, many examples in Jewish literature where he's performing valorous acts of miracles with absolute fearlessness. It's been speculated on his yard site, the day that March is passing, the Jewish people traditionally do a halakha. They do, they give haircuts. And someone argued or someone speculated that there was someone, this Rabbi Ruvain, who tried to solve the problem by getting a Gentile haircut. And that didn't work. Comes along Rabbi Shima with a Jewish haircut and he solves the problem. And therefore, his story is somewhat associated with Jewish haircuts. And therefore, we give a Jewish haircut on the day that is most connected to Rabbi Shimon. One more story before we dig into his teaching. This is a very heartwarming story brought down to the Midrash. There was a couple who lived in the time of Rabbi Shimon. And sadly, they were married for 10 years and were experiencing infertility. The law states that, you know, we have to have children. And what, what is someone, what is someone supposed to do if, again, not due to their own decision, they can't have any children for whatever reasons? Even today, we know that, um, about uh, 15 to 20% of couples, otherwise healthy, experience infertility. And thankfully today, we have all kinds of medical innovations to help with natalism. But at the time, what are you supposed to do? So the Talmud says that, that, that if the man is required to the mitzvah of, of procreation, and if they are incapable with their wife, after 10 years, they should consider whether they should try to find a different wife. Because after all, we're here to do mitzvahs, and if we can't do a mitzvah, we have to find a way to do it. So a couple, they arrive at the doorstep of Rabbi Shimon, and sadly, it's been 10 years, and they don't have any children. And they want to separate and they want Rabbi Shimon to officiate their divorce. But Rabbi Shimon could sense that there was still a lot of love between these two people. So he came up with the following scheme. He said to them, if you want to get divorced, you have to do it properly. You got married with lots of fanfare, with a festive banquet. If you're going to get divorced, you also have to have a festive banquet as well. And indeed, they obeyed. And they made a party. And I guess people got invitations. You're invited to the divorce party of this and this couple. You know, I think that still, still actually exists. When people get away from a toxic relationship, they have a divorce party. That's usually after the divorce. But here we have a divorce party. Unheard of. Who does that? But this is what Rabbi Shimon uh, prescribed to them. So they make this big party and people are drinking a little bit and the husband has a little bit too much to drink. So he tells his wife, his beloved wife of 10 years, he says, listen, we have to go our separate ways and it's very sad, but you're in my house now. Whatever you want to take, you take with you when you go home to your father's home. When you go back to your father's house, whatever you want to take, you can take. This is a pretty good offer, right? So, meanwhile, he falls asleep in his stupor, and she tells her servants, okay, you see my husband here in his bed? I want you to lift his bed and carry it. I'm bringing him with me to my father's home. So, they carry it, and he's drunk, and he's sleeping, and they carry the bed to her father's home. And they plop it down in the house. He's still sleeping through it all. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he's totally disoriented. He's like, where, where am I? Where am I? And he wakes up and he realizes he's in his father-in-law's home. So he's like, what am I doing here? I went to sleep in my home. and This was the divorce party. Divorce party gone awry. What do we do? So his wife tells him, he says, well, you told me that... I could take whatever I want with me. And I chose what I want. I want you. So they were so inspired with the love for each other. They said, you know what? We're going to give us another shot. But before we give it another shot, let's go visit Rabbi Shimon. Let's see what he has to say. They go to Rabbi Shimon. He starts praying. And he says to them, okay, you can go home now. And a year later, they had a child. 
I find this as such a heartwarming story. We read about Rabbi Shimon, and there's a certain intensity to him, a certain uncompromising intensity. You got to study Torah all the time. And he has, you know, he's this titanic Torah scholar and everyone's terrified of him and he does miracles. And in fact, in that particular story where he goes to Rome, nobody wants to accompany him because he's someone that has a very low tolerance of of any sin of any sort. And therefore, people are worried if I travel with him, what's going to be with me? And then we see this this beautiful heartwarming story how he's bringing this couple together and taking the steps to ensure that their marriage is perpetuated in a beautiful way. So that's a little bit of the story of Rabbi Shimon. Again, he's someone who is always on our side. He always believes in us. He always envisions the Jewish people in their brightest, most aspirational way. He sees us as a nation still capable of receiving the manna. By the way, when did the manna actually fall? The first time the manna falls, we do the math. It's actually on Lad Bomer, on the day that Rabbi Shimon passed, on the day that's most associated with Rabbi Shimon, and it is not by chance that his attitude was such of a nation still being able to reclaim their vaunted past, even in uncertain times in the present. And what does he teach? He teaches us that there are lots of crowns in our religion. There's the crown of Torah. There's the crown of priesthood, there's the crown of the monarchy, and then there's the crown of a good name. And the commentaries explain that before Sinai, before the Jewish people finalized their relationship with God, the Almighty told them, what is this nation going to stand for? What does it mean to be the chosen people? And you will be for me? a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. The Jewish people at our zenith are described as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are lots of nations out there. And in fact, our sages tell us there's 70 root nations. And then there's the Jewish people. We are the nation of God. And we're described as a kingdom of priests. A kingdom where everyone is a leader. Just as you have a clergyman who is in charge of the lay people, there is this clergy nation that's in charge of the rest of the world. Normally you have one king and many subjects. Similarly, on a national level, you have a kingly nation and the rest of the other nations. And here we get a description. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? The mission statement of our people is to be a kingdom. What are the crowns of those kings? And we're told there's three crowns, three plus one. There's the crown of Torah, there's the crown of priesthood, and there is the crown of the monarchy. What does it mean to be the Jewish people? What does it mean to be the chosen nation? What does it mean to be the kingdom of priests? It's these three crowns. And the commentaries explain that this triality of Jewish responsibility, we found it before. In fact, the second Mishnah of Pertiavos, all the way back in chapter 1, it tells us that there are three things upon which the, the world stands. The world is held up on a pedestal comprised of three legs, Torah, Avoda, worship of God, service of God, Gemilas Chasadim, kindness. These three crowns are these three steps, are these three feet that are uh, that are upholding this world. Torah, of course, is the crown of Torah. Avoda, worship of God, service of God. Well, what are the what are the Kohanim? What do the priestly class do? They do the service in the temple, which of course is associated with prayer. And what does it mean to be a Jewish king? It means someone takes responsibility for the entire nation. A Jewish monarch is someone who the needs, the desires, the life of all the subjects are on their shoulder. To be a king means to be someone who is an absolute paragon of kindness. Every person's problems are your problems. That's what it means to be a Jewish king. 
our nation stands for something. We're God's people. What does it mean that we have this kingdom of priests stature? It means that we are ensuring the world is being upheld by these three virtues that encompass all of Torah that uphold the world. And when someone excels in Torah, they become a king, so to speak. They are crowned with the crown of Torah. And when someone excels in worship of God, in, in having that relationship with God, of dedicating their life to God, well then, even if they're not a priest per se, they are upholding that third of the world and they're going to be crowned with that crown. And of course, when someone makes it their business to look out for someone else, to do kindness with the other people, well then they have the crown of the monarch, even if they're not necessarily from the family of David and they're not actually a king. And our sages tell us that these three crowns were actually represented in the tabernacle. Tabernacle, of course, had a lot of moving parts, a lot of different vessels. But there's three of them that were actually had a crown built into the very vessel itself. In the Holy of Holies, you would find the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron Habris. And of course, the Ark was made of gold and it had some wood in it and then it was also covered in gold. Inside the Ark, broken set of tablets, non-broken set of tablets, the Torah that Moshe actually wrote himself. And it's covered, of course, with the cover that had the cherubs, that had the kruvim on top of it. But at the edge of the ark was a crown. And I say, just tell us, that represents the crown of Torah. The ark that held the Torah. And therefore, the crown that surrounds it represents this crown of Torah that Rabbi Shimon is talking about. And then once you got out of the Holy of Holies and you were just in the what's called the holy or the, the 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 sanctuary, then you have three vessels inside there. You have the menorah. Menorah does not have any crown, at least not one made of gold. And then you have the shulch on the table, and that does have a crown. Our sages tell us represent the crown of the monarchy. And the third vessel in that uh, sanctum of the sanctuary is the inner altar, which is a small golden altar upon which the ketores, the incense, was performed. And that was also surrounded with a crown and that represents the crown of the priesthood. Because that was, you know, the the when a priest would do the work, the thing that everyone coveted, all the priests wanted to do every day was to do the ketores service in the temple. And then you have the menorah. The menorah does not have a crown of its own, but the menorah, our sages tell us, that corresponds to the crown of good name. What that means is, is that there's three components of our spiritual life, and there's three crowns that we could potentially achieve. And they are embodied, of course, by these three vessels. But then you have the menorah. And the menorah, that takes the power And it takes the holiness of these three vessels and it shines it forth. And that corresponds to the crown of a good name. And again, if you notice, the Mishnah says, Rabbi Shimon points out that there's three crowns. Three crowns, not four crowns. But then he actually lists four crowns. You have the crown of Torah, the crown of priest, the crown of monarchy, and the crown of a good name. So is it three, is it four? The answer is that the crown of a good name is the actualization of these three spiritual components of our life. When someone could have Torah, but if it's not married with good character, if it's not presented in a way that people could absorb it, people could have Torah using it for the wrong reason, having improper motives, you have Torah, but it doesn't have the good, good name associated with it. You're not shining that light out. You're not doing a good job. Similarly, all the other parts of our spiritual life could be done in an improper way with improper motives, and then it doesn't have the good name associated with it, and then it's not actualized. And the Talmud tells us that in Olam Abba, in the world to come, in the world of the afterlife, in the world of eternity, in the world of the soul, there's no eating, there's no drinking, there's no standing, there's no sitting, there's no business dealings. 
So what are people doing? The tzaddikim, the righteous who merit an invitation to that world. They sit. And their crowns are on their heads. And they have the opportunity to bask in the pleasure of God. In the future, the righteous are going to be sitting with their crowns on their heads. Where do those crowns come from? Here's the answer. Rishimon tells us, when you do Torah, you do worship of God, you connect to God, you help your fellow man, you do kindness. When you are advancing on the three components of your spiritual life, each one of them is associated with the crown and those efforts, that Torah study, those mitzvos, are you actually preparing for yourself the crown that hopefully will adorn you for eternity in Olam Abba. Now, there's a very famous Rambam in the Laws of Torah, chapter 3, where he talks about these three crowns. And he views it in a more, I would say, um, narrow sense. The crown of Torah, the crown of kingdom is the literal crown given to David and descendants, and the crown of priesthood, referring to the literal priesthood of Aaron and his children. He tells us, the Jewish people are crowned with three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingdom. The crown of priesthood, that is the property of Aaron and his sons. Me as a non-Cohen, there is nothing I could do to earn that crown. And then there's the crown of the monarchy. And that was given to David and to David's descendants. And if someone is not a descendant of David, if enough of the tribe of Judah, they are not a candidate to be king. However, the crown of Torah is there and available for all. Whoever wants to take it, may come and take it. And don't think that the crown of the monarchy, the crown of priesthood is greater. Oh no, the crown of Torah outshines them all. The Talmud actually says something very staggering. The Talmud says this is not only applying for Jews. Even Gentiles, says the Talmud, book of Sanctuary, page 59a, even a Gentile who studies Torah, behold, he is like a high priest. The commentaries add that someone who is Jewish who studies Torah is even greater than the high priest. Why? Because where does the crown of Torah reside? It's surrounding the ark. It's inside the Holy of Holies. The high priest is really holy. But you know what? He's only an occasional visitor to the Holy of Holies. He comes there once a year, and he's there for a few times doing some work there. He's only a sporadic participant in the crown of Torah. When someone themselves is crowned by Torah, they become the equivalent of the ark. They are adopting the crown of the ark upon themselves, and therefore they are permanently inside the Holy of Holies, not just an occasional visitor. And we're told a staggering thing that even the Gentile can connect to this power provided they are studying the Torah that relates to them. And this is a powerful insight, a powerful teaching that we're told here with Rabbi Shimon's teaching. When we are doing Torah, we're studying Torah, we're doing mitzvahs. Like we had a few Mishnahs earlier. Every time we do a mitzvah, every time we study Torah, you are creating an angel. There is a real, tangible, spiritual reality being manifested in the world. Of course, we don't see it because we live, we live in the physical world. We're limited. But that's what the Torah is revealing to us, that there's the world of the soul. And in that world, the only thing that matters is Torah mitzvos. And I found it particularly apropos that Rabbi Shimon, he is the one who's teaching us this lesson. He is the one who says, oh no, don't tell me that the princes, oh, the other prince, the, the, the sons of the nobility, they're the ones who could put on this perfume on Shabbos. And the rest of us can't. We're all princes. We're all part of this kingdom of priests and holy nation. And therefore you cannot say this Jew is a prince and this Jew is not. And therefore he's the one who's showing us we're all holy. We're all part of the nobility, we're all 
close to God, we're all part of this kingdom of peace and holy nation, and we all have our opportunity to access these crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of the priesthood, and the crown of the monarchy. So I think it's a powerful lesson. I think it dovetails really nicely with the rest of the teaching we have till now. And it's always important for us to remember where we come from. We were that nation that God was so close to, he gave us food every day. For 40 years, millions of people received their food from God directly for 40 years. What a powerful thing. And Rabbi Shimon tells us, you know what? Those crowns are still accessible to us today. My email address is rabbiwalbajima.com. Don't hesitate to reach out with any questions or comments or feedback of any kind.